0: Welcome to Brainstorm Decoding Depression, where we will dig into discussions about mood disorders. We are here to change the way we think and talk about depression in an accessible, approachable way with a leading expert in the field. No topic is off limits. Coming to you from Dallas, Texas, this is Brainstorm. The opinions
1: expressed are only our own and do not reflect those of UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT System, or the state.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Brainstorm Decoding Depression. I'm Katherine Forbes, and I'm excited to speak today with Dr. Madhukar Trevetti, as always, and Dr. Ann Fuller about risk, resilience, and prevention. What puts someone at risk of developing depression? Are we able to prevent depression? How can resilience be taught and absorbed? What does the research show? We have a lot on this topic, so let's dive right in. Dr. Ann Fuller is joining us from Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, where she is assistant professor in the School of Psychology. She received her master's and PhD in clinical psychology with a child family subspecialty from Loyola University, Chicago, and completed her postdoctoral research with us at the CDRC. Welcome, Dr. Fuller. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you all about this today. So to get started, tell us why this topic is so important to you. Yeah. So, you know, mental health
1: prevention and risk and resilience are topics that I've gotten really passionate about throughout my career. And I think, you know, we're learning more and more that mental health difficulties are, are really common. We see somewhere around like of people in the U.S. developing a mental health health issue. And they're also really costly, right? Not just financially, but in terms of like the impact that they have on individuals' lives. So their relationships, their school, their work, all of those areas get impacted. And, you know, my focus is on kids and adolescents. And we know that most people who develop a mental health problem do so before they're 24 years old or by the time they're 24 years old. So we see like there's really a a need to emphasize prevention, early intervention work with young people. But instead, what our society and the mental health field has often done is to take this kind of reactive approach where we don't intervene until there's a significant concern. And we know that a lot of people don't get mental health treatment or they have a lot of delays in accessing care because of the cost of treatment, not knowing where to find treatment, stigma, not having time for it. So especially in our current climate with the pandemic and the increased desire for mental health services in, among individuals, I think we really have an opportunity to shift our focus from kind of this reactive approach to prevention, early intervention, where we can really reduce the burden of mental illness and help people boost their well-being and their quality of life.
0: Yeah, that sounds exactly what Dr. Trevetti says every episode about being proactive rather than reactive and the importance of that. And we consistently talk about risk, but there are so many different factors that can contribute to risk of developing depression. So Dr. Fuller, can you discuss what puts someone at risk? Is it hereditary, environmental, situational, and is it a for sure thing?
1: Yeah, so the short answer is that it's not a sure thing. as a field trying to get better at predicting who's at risk for mental health difficulties and who might have less risk for those types of problems like depression, but it's definitely not an exact science and and we're not perfect at it by any means. So just like you mentioned, risk factors span across a whole array of domains. So hereditary factors, environmental factors, situational factors, the way that we think and feel about different things that happen in our lives. So all of those different domains kind of combine to determine determine whether any one person develops a mental health problem like depression or not. So we can talk about things like having a parent history of depression that might create a genetic risk or, you know, create something in the home environment that creates the risk for depression. When people go through stressful times or problems at home, like their parents getting divorced or being abused, we can see kind of increased risk. And there's a whole slew of other factors that we could talk about. But the take-home message is that it's never just one thing that triggers depression or any mental health issue for that matter. It's always that interaction of the different risk factors. And we also can talk about well, what are the protective factors and the things Things that you know keep people from developing a mental health issue, even if they have those risk factors. So we always want to be looking at that whole constellation of issues.
0: Yeah, I feel like intersectionality is a very important word when talking about this. And on social media, especially lately, I've seen the word trauma a lot and people tend to throw it around. So in this case, if a child is exposed to trauma, how would that influence their development of a mental illness?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and like you said, people kind of use that term and it's not always clear what we mean by it. You know, in the mental health world, sometimes we talk about like capital T trauma, like you're really afraid for your life or you're facing a serious injury. And then sometimes we talk about what we'll call like little t trauma. So something that's really stressful and really impactful, but isn't quite on that level of like, fearing that, you know, you aren't going to be seriously harmed in a a physical sense, right? So I think that's one thing just to keep in mind is that trauma can mean lots of different things. Um, But that doesn't mean that we don't take something seriously just because it's kind of that little t trauma. So I think one thing to keep in mind is that lots of people are going to, you know, have a tough time after they go through something stressful, but that doesn't mean that they're going to develop a mental illness, right, it might just be sort of a short term reaction, just like we would all experience if we were stressed out or going through something really difficult. In terms of, you know, the risk of developing a mental illness, if someone is exposed to trauma, something that I think we don't always think about is that Unfortunately, a lot of people experience traumatic events in their lives. So about half of people in the U.S. experience some sort of traumatic event but the vast majority of them don't develop PTSD. So we see that idea of resilience of people getting through a tough time and turning out okay, even though they're facing something really stressful. So people who face a traumatic event, they might develop PTSD, they might develop depression, certainly a risk factor for depression, but it's by no means a guarantee. Lots and lots of people face trauma and get through it and show that resilience. So some of the things that do put people at greater risk for PTSD might be things like their genetic history or how distressing the event for them was. We also know there's gender differences. So Females are more prone to PTSD Um, and certain biological differences or differences based on the type of trauma that they face. So all that being said, you know, Again, we're not perfect at predicting who's going to develop a mental health issue and who isn't, but the good news is that we have strategies that have research to show us that they're helpful in, you know, benefiting many people who face a traumatic event. And so what we can do is when people face a traumatic event, we can try to give them support just the way we always do when people are stressed out and we can kind of keep an eye on them and monitor and see if they might need more formal treatment down the road. That was a
0: great explanation. Thank you. And piggybacking off of the terminology conversation, Dr. Trevetti, I hope you can help us differentiate between mental health and mental illness or mental health disorder. So what is the proper terminology? Because many times, as we said, these terms are thrown around in contexts that may not fit what people are meaning to describe.
2: So I thanks a lot, Anne, for your descriptions about this. But I think what we have done is too often focused on illness, mental illness and mental disorders. First thing, these are brain disorders. We know that. Once there you have a brain disorder, how it manifests itself is many ways that affect your mental health. Mental health overall, when we say mental health or well-being, we really talk about people how they interact with other people, how they deal with stresses in their lives and how purposeful they feel their life is. A very extreme example is people who attempt or unfortunately complete suicide, they reach a point where they feel like there is no purpose left in life. And so what we have to do is not just focus on mental illness, but also really focus on recovery so that people recover their mental health and therefore, we have to educate them, help them get to a point where they are able to deal with people in their lives, deal with their environment, learn how to manage their stress, and actually get in connect contact with their whole self so that they have a purpose left in life. And we all too often wait until there is a crisis, and Anne mentioned it earlier, we tend to Think of our, mental, uh, our approach to mental illness. It is like as if we were to only focus on stage four breast cancer. We would lose a lot of women if that is all we did. So we have moved as a society where we do early diagnosis, we do mammograms, we screen women for, de- for breast cancer all the time. For depression, we don't. So like uh, uh, Dr. Fuller mentioned, while depression, anxiety is a pediatric illness, half the people never get diagnosed. So while the world complains about access, it actually is really a question of identification and vocabulary and early diagnosis that really is the big challenge.
0: When it comes to teaching tools to promote resilience, would you say that this is to encourage mental health or to treat mental illness? Is it used to prevent illness in those at risk or to help those already diagnosed? And how Would you say that outcomes differ? Dr. Fuller, do you want to go first?
1: Sure. So I think it's a little bit of a both. And I think a lot of times, the tools that we use to treat people who are experiencing mental health problems or mental illnesses can also be used to promote well-being among people who don't currently have a mental health problem. So we can think about teaching coping skills or teaching ways even just to ask for help. That can be something that a lot of people really find challenging to do when they might need it. So I think it's sort of maybe a little bit about tweaking how we deliver those skills or teach those strategies, but I think really they cut across the board and they're oftentimes beneficial for both groups of people that we're talking about.
2: But the one fundamental thing is resilience can be taught. And we can actually improve people's ability to deal with stresses, their coping strategies. And as Dr. Fuller mentioned, seek help. because And we all too often in psychiatry have really divided our field into medication, psychotherapy. Instead, we should be thinking of the person as a whole person and address whatever their needs are, both in through therapy, resilience building, as well as medications when needed, so that you're not actually, it is not either or, as Anne said, we have to be thinking about the whole person and helping them recover to their previous level of functioning. And often somebody is given a medication but nobody is really focusing on the engagement so half the people who start treatment don't continue treatment beyond the first several weeks we have to figure out a way to engage people add more quality to the type of treatments they're getting add accountability in the system so that we will measure how they are doing and if they're not doing well then add a different treatment go to a different treatment again something that we have not focused on. And then even after symptoms are gone, which is what we often focus on, we have to be thinking about recovery as well as resilience. And
0: Dr. Trivedi, you just used the phrase, we can teach resilience. So explain to us how we would go about that and how our community resources can teach resilience.
2: What we have really focused on is a lot of our work is in schools where we do a five session resilience building program called YAM. That program is now being delivered through our Center Training Academy and all 12 medical schools and their health-related institutions across the state are actually being trained to deliver that in their school districts. It is focused on helping students learn by experience rather than just sitting through a classroom. If it was just that simple by telling kids, just start thinking about mental health, then we would have already succeeded. need to teach them, we need to help them learn the vocabulary. And that is the kind of work we are doing in schools, more needs to be done. And maybe Anne can actually elaborate more.
0: And for those listening, YAM stands for Youth Aware of Mental Health. And we've discussed this on previous episodes of the podcast. So Dr. Fuller, if you could give us a little background on work done in schools and how this is important in resilience
1: yeah absolutely so one of the things that we've touched on a couple of times already is you know this issue of access to care right that many people don't get the treatment that they need for various reasons and so one of the reasons that we really focus on schools when we're talking about children and adolescents and even getting up into the college and university level is because it decreases some of that barrier of access to care both with things like cost transportation knowing where to seek help so most kids are in school. And so if we can screen students in school, identify mental health problems there, and then treat them or do the prevention work in schools, that opens up a huge opportunity to increase that access to services that we're aiming for. So schools have sort of different approaches that they use where they might have universal prevention programs like YAM, where all students get the service regardless of their risk for mental health. And then they have more targeted programs for students who are starting to show signs of mental health problems. So we have sort of these different frameworks that we can use to work with uh, with students. But when we get them in the schools, it really, again, just gives us this great opportunity to meet them where they're at and decrease some of those barriers to care.
2: And all of you who have heard me speak about this before, I I kind of unfortunately also bristle at this access problem everybody focuses on. A large part of that access problem is really awareness problem so that the questions about access only come when there is somebody's in a crisis. That would never happen in medical illnesses if if you really focused on the full person and started early on. So YAM, as uh, Dr. Fuller mentioned, is a program we have in a whole classroom. And in that classroom, then you do early identification through screening so that people can get connected with care without having to suddenly struggle to find access to care. And I think that we have really tilted the health system in such a manner that we only tend to focus on urgencies and emergencies, and in the process, people have a hard time getting access to their care. So first is awareness. And the second is we have to educate and partner with people so they get engaged in care so they don't give up after two weeks and three weeks of treatment.
0: And Dr. Trevati, could you tell us how we can bridge that gap of access? I know that you had mentioned the previously in previous episodes, I know that you had mentioned in previous episodes, the dual factor model of mental health. Tell us about that.
2: So two things. One is we have to focus on both the symptoms, which is the first thing we always focus on. But unfortunately, it ends up being the last thing we focus on. Instead, we have to be thinking about well-being. And I already addressed the issue of recovery, resilience building, functional impairment, et cetera. The second part of this issue is, I think we have to start early. And that is why we we are really excited about the statewide training academy where we will be partnering with all these medical schools who will then go into their own school districts because we can then approach the entire classroom, screen for people who have a problem and connect them to care. And that is the real advantage of doing this early on so that you can actually identify those who need to be in treatment or even getting resilience boosting programs, and then move on from there.
0: And here we call that the CDRC Resilience Academy, and it does have a comprehensive approach, such as training facilitators, which Dr. Fuller, you're doing soon, um, to deliver the EM program, and that is what you call the universal approach. And we've mentioned Avexia, We had an episode about that. And tell us about implementing targeted interventions for at-risk and vulnerable students.
2: I I think that, and I'll again uh, invite. Uh, uh, Dr. Fuller, to add to it, but I think one of our our work at the center is really to try to develop blood and brain tests in order to actually develop precision treatments so that in the very near future, we are hopeful that we'll get to a point where you do some easy-to-do blood tests and identify what is the right treatment for the person, put in place things like uh, monitoring and measurements, and that's where evixia comes in to help you monitor yourself, and identify treatments that work. If they don't, then you change it. And similarly, we are developing brain tests also so that we will be able to, in the near future, identify what works best for which person so we don't have to go through a trial and error process.
0: Thank you. And lastly, an additional approach for the CDRC Resilience Academy focuses on enrolling at-risk students into our Resilience in Adolescent Development, RAD, study. Dr. Fuller, tell us a little bit about RAD.
1: Sure. So RAD is part of what we call the Texas Resilience Against Depression Program, or TRAD, um, which basically is a, a 10-year longitudinal study. So that means that you all at the CDRC are following participants for 10 years and trying to collect data from them multiple times per year. So getting really rich, extensive information on these individuals to help us understand more about depression and risk for depression. So you heard a little bit of what Dr. Trevetti was talking about with things like brain tests and blood markers. And so, you know, the field is really moving towards trying to get more information on a biological level about depression, things like blood work and the gut microbiome, imaging data like MRIs and EEGs, and then your more kind of traditional psychological data like surveys and interviews about people's mental health. So, TRAD has two parts to it. One group or cohort is individuals who have already been diagnosed with depression or bipolar disorder or who meet those diagnostic criteria. So that's D2K, which is people 10 and up. Um, And currently, I know you all are focusing on kind of enrolling some younger people, so that kind of youth focus that we've been talking about today. And then there's a second cohort, which is the RAD group, that is 10 to 24-year-olds who don't have depression or bipolar disorder yet, but are at risk for those disorders. And so the goal is to follow both of these groups for 10 years and with D2K to understand more about depression from that biological perspective with the biomarkers and brain and blood features to develop those better treatments that Dr. Trivedi was mentioning. And then on the rad side of things, we have the individuals without depression, and we're trying to get better at predicting risk for depression. So understanding more about who goes on to actually develop depression and who ends up demonstrating a little more of the resilience side of things where they don't develop that
0: mental health disorder. So I know that you had mentioned that the goal is to follow these groups for 10 years. What is the value of 10 years of information in this kind of research?
1: If we do things for a shorter period of time, we don't always have enough time to study it, right? So some people don't develop depression until they're early adults or later in life. So if we can kind of catch people early, it gives us more of an opportunity to see what happens over a longer period of time, but it also gives us a chance to see, you know, maybe they develop depression and they recover. So sort of what is that broader course of illness or course of resilience that someone might demonstrate that we can't capture by studying someone for six months or a year or two.
2: And like with any other medical illness, this is not a two-week or a four-week illness. And so we have to be thinking about long-term long so that we can identify what are the blood and brain-based and clinical and cognitive and psychological markers at each stage so that we can then again match them into the right treatment. This is what we have done in heart disease. This is what we have done in diabetes. And tragically, we have not done something like this for depression. There is no similar cohort in the country that people are currently using. So we are actually at the forefront of this effort. And the goal is that over a 10-year, and we are saying 10, we will extend it to 20 and 30, is that we will be able to actually identify what is the predicted trajectory for any given person. And our hope originally was and continues to be to develop the most definitive study that is being done anywhere in the country. But the exciting thing is we are already beginning to get early results from this. We have now published several papers, one looking at protein markers that basically send signals and messages to the body that affects the brain. We have looked at things like gut microbiome We've also looked at EEG and MRI to look at brain circuits. And all three, for example, one example which is very striking, if we've studied a group of kids who have attempted suicide. And the tragedy is that when a teenager attempts suicide, even with the best of treatment in the country, 22 to 25% of them will attempt again. So we looked at their inflammatory markers, proteins in the blood, that actually identified a particular type of protein that is affected in kids who will attempt again. If we can do this on a regular basis, then we can actually identify those for whom the risk is even greater, and we can then put in the right efforts so that we can reduce rates of death and suicide from depression.
0: And are these studies currently recruiting? How can a listener become involved in these?
2: So the. The studies are currently recruiting. We need people to participate. Thankfully, the 1500 people we already have in the study are becoming true partners. We call them and they are very willing to actually communicate with us, come back to us for tests, et cetera. So we are looking for more people and how best to connect with us, you will tell them with the website.
0: And if you are interested in becoming involved in this study, We are recruiting people aged 10 to 24 for RAD and 10 and up for D2K, and further details can be found at www.centerfordepression.org. Before we head out, Dr. Fuller, if you could give us a key takeaway about risk, resilience, and prevention, what would it be?
1: So I'm going to give you all a little bit of a multi-part takeaway since there's a lot to that topic um, with risk, resilience and prevention. So I think my first point is that as we've been talking about, we don't want to wait until young people or adults are really struggling with their mental health to intervene. I think the alternative and more effective approach you know all across the board for individuals for society is to really focus on early intervention and screening just like we do with physical illnesses as dr trevetti was saying earlier and i think aside from that going back to that idea of about teaching resilience we know that we can teach resilience. So I think we can shift our focus to really emphasize teaching skills like coping strategies and stress management that can benefit everybody, whether they're someone who's doing well and just wants to keep taking good care of themselves, or if they're someone who's starting to struggle with their mental health and wants some strategies that they can use to help themselves out with that. And we can do that instead of waiting until someone is having mental health difficulties to start worrying about finding them treatment and connecting them to care. And what I think all of this does for us is it, you know, sets people up to maybe show some more of that resilience and avoid more serious mental health difficulties, but it also sets up both young people and the adults around them to do a better job of taking care of themselves and the people that they care about when they do need help. So knowing how to help someone, how to ask for help and how to get someone connected to the right people and services when they are struggling with their mental health.
0: This is really important work. Thank you. And we really appreciate your research. Lastly, Dr. Trebetti, what is the main point that you would like to leave us with?
2: I, I'm going to give a much more simpler answer. And that is, we are the center is expanding, the studies are expanding, and we are increasing faculty. And Dr. Fuller's kind of work is the very kind of resilience building work. We want to expand. So we are going to try to see if she wants to move to Dallas. Dr. Fuller, one more uh, uh, clarification sort of detail if you can provide when a mother or father is worried about their teenager having some difficulties they're not sleeping well or they are not going to school as regularly or they are actually being irritable what would be the advice you would give them
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think sometimes it's hard to know, maybe particularly with teenagers, when something is just kind of typical teen behavior, right, and when something is is cause for concern. So I think A lot of times what I encourage parents or caregivers to do is just start with your child's pediatrician or their primary care doctor. They're usually the people that can start to tell you, you know, what's expected and what's something to be worried about. And if it is something to be worried about, they're really a great resource to start thinking about, you know, how to start getting some help and how to get connected to the right kinds of care
2: and one of the other things i tell parents is if you even remotely have a question that is clearly past the time when you should start getting a consultation from a primary care or pediatrician and don't ignore it don't write off teenage behavior as just teens being teens if you have a question or if you have a suspicion that me is right time for you to get a consultation
0: very important i'm glad that y'all mentioned that That's it for this episode of brainstorm decoding depression with your hosts from the center for depression research and clinical care. Be sure to follow us on social media at UTSW underscore CDRC. So you don't miss our episode announcements. If you have suggestions for topics or questions you'd like answered, we have an email address just for this show decoding depression podcast at UTSouthwestern.edu. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.